And so we are super blessed to have um, Dr. Jim Hayford with us this morning. Um, some of you may have heard him preach before. Um, I just have to tell a funny story about how I met the Haifords. So about 10 years ago, I was at our Foursquare summer camp. Um, I was new to like what Foursquare was. You know, it was my first like real denomination I was in. And I had heard these names, the Haifords. You know, the Haifords were Foursquare, you know, big pillars. And so I'm sitting at this table with my friends, uh, Sean and April, they were running the camp. And, and I was probably making sarcastic jokes or doing whatever I was doing. And this lady was at the table, and she kind of started laughing, and April said, oh, have you met my grandmother, Betsy? And I was like, no, hey, you know, what, hey, kind of thing. And she's like, Betsy Hayford. And I was like, oh. And I like froze, and I didn't know what to do, because I was like, oh my gosh, Betsy Hayford. So I was like, do I stand? Do I curt? Like, do I bow? I don't know what to do. Like, I was, I was absolutely panicked, because, I, and then a gym was outside, you know? Like, he comes in, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Jim Hayford, you know? Um, so... I tell that because they are nothing like that. Um, I do joke in front of her, I always curtsy now when I see her, and, and that's how we greet each other. Um, they are amazing. They were senior pastors over at uh, Eastside Foursquare for a number of years and are still uh, committed to that church and praying for that church. Um, Jim gets the opportunity to speak at other churches in our district, um, kind of helps them when they need help or as we need help today, he was willing to step in. He, they are pillars, um, not only of our district, but I believe of the Foursquare movement. Um, Jim hears from the Lord. He's, he's prayed for this church, and I know that what he has is exactly what God um, wants us to hear today. So can you please welcome Dr. Jim Hayford this morning? Thanks a lot. Want to help me move this uh, table up here a little bit? I don't want to spill that communion. <laughs> right in the middle of that. That's good, 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 good. We'll get organized here. Put this over here. Okay, I feel better now. Good morning. I'm glad that it worked out for me to pinch hit for your pastor today. I'm sorry for what he's going through. And um, he called me on Friday and it just so happened that I had this Sunday available in my schedule, so I'm glad it worked out. It's been a couple of years since we've been here, and uh, my, my practice when being invited as a guest is to ask the pastor what he or she would like for me to talk about rather than to bring my own agenda. I really like just to work with whatever the Lord is doing in that particular local church, and he told me about the soap deal and what he's doing this summer and told me about the text that he was planning to bring to you today and asked me if I would just develop that same text and he handed me one of the best chapters in the Bible. I mean, it's just like a gift. And in fact, if I was smart, all I'd do is just read it to you and then sit down <laughs> because it preaches itself. But I guess I'm not very smart because I'm going to share a few thoughts with you. Kind of feel obligated as a guest speaker to do that. You know, you got you to say something. But I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to one of the passages of Scripture that I consider a Grand Canyon passage of Scripture, the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. Several of you read it this week. It's only 12 verses long. It's remarkable. We're going to read it once through, and then I'm going to go through it 
in some segments after that with my, my wife's help reading the scriptures and uh, just visit this amazing passage of scripture which includes at least uh, 12 prophetic statements, predictions about the circumstances of the, the trial, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you can see, um, well, maybe you can't see. What's up there? Okay. Is it on? Here's a couple of observations I'd like to make before we get into the text this morning about Isaiah, and particularly the 53rd chapter, and I'm going to call this talk this morning Snapshots. Uh, the prophet Isaiah... Is See, he talked a lot about the person and the work of Jesus with incredible accuracy, keeping in mind that uh, he lived about 750 years before the time of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, he prophesied to Judah, the southern kingdom of the two kingdoms of Israel. In 740 to 700 before Christ. He was a spiritual advisor to four episodes of prophetic advisory leadership to a king was to the great King Hezekiah, and it's really fun to read the stories that talk about how he helped that king overcome their enemies, particularly the Assyrians. Israel was caught in real power play during his, <coughs> during his lifetime between Assyria to the east and Egypt to the south and to the west, which were the two great empires of the period, and smack dab between them was the land of Israel, and so either Egypt was trying to get to Assyria or Assyria was trying to get to Egypt, and of course the way to do that was right through Jerusalem. So it was a, it was a very interesting time in history for people living in that part of the world. <clears throat> and he was executed by the king of Samaria, the northern kingdom, because of some of the prophecies that he made about the destruction of that kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, and, uh, but was an amazing, amazing man. <clears throat> before we, again, before we look at the text, I want you to try and put yourself in the, in the, in the sandals of Isaiah for a couple of minutes. First of all, when we read these prophecies in the Bible, have you ever thought, what, what was it like? What, what, was the, what was the experience that this individual had like where they, they experienced these uh, visions or dreams or voices or whatever? You know, for each of them, it was kind of a different experience, but we just kind of take for granted that they're there and God spoke to them and, you know, we just live happily ever after with all these prophecies. But what was it like? to receive a word like this from God Almighty. 
and how hundreds and hundreds of years before something you're seeing or something you're hearing takes place, how do you wrap your head around that? Where do you find the vocabulary to describe what you're seeing? My heart has always gone out to John the Revelator, for example, on how he tries to describe things that are still yet in our future with the vocabulary of a man that lived in 35 AD. And I think that what Hezekiah, excuse me, what Isaiah saw that we read here in chapter 53, which is Calvary, that it must have been an amazing, mind-blowing vision of the future that he ran into that day. And yet the Holy Spirit breathed upon him and helped him to record in some of the most beautiful language you're going to find in the Old Testament what he saw out into the future. Don't take any passage of Scripture for granted. Think about the time in which it was originally given, the people that it was given to, and what it must have been, have been like for them to conscientiously communicate what they saw in such a way that people like you and me could benefit from it now. You know, one of the interesting things about the book of Isaiah is that uh, probably the best preserved scroll found in 1948 in the caves of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, was the Isaiah scroll. And the amazing thing about this scroll, which was probably copied, that particular copy was probably almost 200 years old before Jesus was born, is that every single word in that scroll is exactly the same as the text that you would find in your English Bible today. Talk about the way the Lord has preserved the integrity and the authority of the scriptures. I told you that Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. Now, what was Jerusalem like in uh, 700 BC? In 700 BC, Jerusalem was, of course, a much smaller city than it would have been during the time of Christ. But we do know that during the time of Christ, that the place where he was crucified, which we refer to as Golgotha, or as Calvary, was just outside the walls of the city. There's a dispute to this day exactly where that might have been, but there is, if you've visited, if you've ever had the privilege of visiting Jerusalem, there is a, an area just on the north side of the Temple Mount that resembles a skull in the side of a, of a hill. And many people believe that even though that was so long ago that, that the terrain looked that way, that the, the nature of it is that it could very well have been the place that was referred to as the, the place of the skull. 
interesting thing about it is that that particular piece of land right now is a bus station, an Arab bus station. And it's very, very possible that the place where Jesus Christ of Nazareth bore our sins on the cross is today commemorated by a bus station. But it would kind of be just like God to turn a place like that into a bus station so that people didn't start worshiping it or doing something crazy with it. But the thing that's most interesting about this outcropping called the place of the skull and the bus station is that it's just, it's actually the, if you can, I hope I can explain this to you because it is significant that, that the outcropping that's called the place of the skull is actually a continuation of the Temple Mount, which keeps with Old Testament scripture that it was on the north side of Mount Zion is the beautiful place of the redemption of mankind. But the area between the Temple Mount and the walls of the city and this outcropping that we call the Golgotha is now a flat area which includes a highway and a bus depot, but all of that at one time was a part of the mountain, but was removed very carefully as a quarry to build the temple. And so that adds even some more significance to this place that might have been where Jesus died for our sins. Now, none of that information that I just gave you is going to change your life. <laughs> I know that, but you've been patient with me and there's a reason why I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this. Is I wonder if there was a day, I think there probably was, when Isaiah was walking through that area that had by that time been cleared. And I wonder if uh, as he stood somewhere on or near the place where Jesus died for our sins, if this prophetic revelation, this, this vision came upon him there. Why not? And when this started coming to him, when this landscape in front of him supernaturally changed into what it would look like on the day that Jesus was killed. What he must have thought, what he must have felt. In fact, I think we get an idea of that. If I could have this uh, next slide. In the very first thing that he says as he begins to describe what he saw, he says, who... to say, you're not going to believe this. Because when he first saw it, he couldn't believe it either. Because what he saw unveiled to his prophetic eyes was nothing like anyone in his time would have imagined what the work of the Messiah would have been like. They were expecting a king. They were expecting a conqueror. 
and what opened to him that day and was identified to him as being the Messiah of Israel doing his redemptive work on our behalf looked nothing like what he would have ever imagined in his life. And ladies and gentlemen, so often you and I in our spiritual walks, we, ha we have certain predispositions about how certain spiritual things ought to be. And we get it in our mind based on traditions or sermons or just lovely little thoughts that people have how certain, th certain things are going to be in our relationship with God. And, and we, get, we get locked onto those things, and we don't let God surprise us. Did you hear me? I think my best definition of grace is being surprised. God wants to surprise us. He wants to show us things beyond our, our wildest imaginations. In this day, he entrusted to Isaiah something that he began by saying, nobody's going to believe this, but I got to write it down anyway. And so he took some this snapshots this morning. He took, in, in my opinion, he took five pictures, five snapshots of what he saw. And then he tried to, to wrap his words around it to help us to understand, to help people understand what was to come. And so he begins to talk about the man that he saw hanging on that cross. And it was revealed to him that he grew up before him like a... trying to make Jesus pretty. You've seen the pictures. I call them caricatures. And then we try and look pretty. We all want to look like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, but we get weird doing that. <laughs> Most of the people that I know that are working really hard at trying to be like Jesus are weird because we become caricatures. Yes, the scripture calls, tells us to be conformed into the image of Christ. And there's so much about his character and his qualities that need to be introduced by the Holy Spirit into our lives. But it isn't a look. Did you hear me? It isn't a glassy-eyed look. It isn't a super spirituality. It's a practical, transformational, meaningful, genuine way of being yourself. It's time for religious people to stop trying to be someone they are not. Because being spiritual is not about impressing anybody except Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract. Think about the person on this earth that you uh, are the most prejudiced against. Well, maybe he looked like that. What color is that? What size is that? 
What IQ is that? You know, what is your pecking order of who's acceptable, who's beautiful? I guarantee you that the lowest person on your list, the lowest person on my social order, probably looks very much like Jesus. But I know this for sure, he loves them just as much as he loves me or anybody else higher up on my list. He either died for everyone or he didn't. Beautiful or ugly, strong or weak, smart or stupid. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was aspired to and you being like Jesus, isn't it? I want to be just like Jesus. And of course, that means I'm going to be popular. I'm going to be a miracle worker. People are going to stand in lines to come and listen to me. Well, this man that Isaiah thought was going to be a great conquering deliverer, when he actually saw him, he said, good grief, nobody's going to believe this, but he was despised. He was rejected by mankind. People didn't know who he was. They didn't treat him the way that they deserved to. I suppose he could have run around that visionary scene that he was in trying to shake Roman soldiers and other lookers and saying, don't you know who that is? Don't you know who that is? But they couldn't hear him because he, he wasn't really there. A man of... adequately explain a Roman crucifixion. That, that, that word doesn't adequately explain being rejected by the very people you created. It's just, it's just not a sufficient word. And he was familiar with pain it's one of the things that you and I like to talk about a lot is our pain. And it's real. And the Lord cares about it, but he's familiar with your pain. When you say you're hurting, he knows exactly what you're talking about. When you say you're in pain, he knows how you feel. Because he's been there. Physically, mentally and emotionally. Physically abused. Mentally abused. All kinds of insults hurled at him. Emotionally abused. Despised, rejected, mocked. There is not a human emotion that anyone in this room has ever experienced 
that Jesus did not during his lifetime experience. Because the Bible says that he was in all points tested. And I looked up that word all one time in the Greek. It means all. <laughs> that includes your stuff. That includes your junk. There's nobody here that has some extra special, exclusive, unique thing going on in your life that Jesus can't understand or relate to. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like Jesus. Doesn't even want to look at him. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. God's forsaken him. God's left him. He must not have been the Messiah. He must not be a man of God. He's, a, he's an imposter, or none of this would have happened to him. Sometimes we wonder why some of the things that happen to us happen to us. I mean, I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. I've paid my tithes. I helped the old lady across the street the other day. And look at what's going down in my life right now. That's not right. We start getting angry with God. Well, Jesus did every blooming thing you could possibly think of right. And look at the pickle he's in here. And while he was going through that and Hell was laughing. And people misunderstood. A miracle was taking place. Verse 5 is the miracle. I underlined it for emphasis, but he was pierced for my transgressions, for your transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities, your iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace, that the consequence of my sin was satisfied by him paying a consequence he did not deserve. And by his wounds, we are healed. Amen. But what did we do about that miracle? What did we do about that? And I talk about the collective we of the history of mankind over the last 2,000 years, having experienced the benefit of what Isaiah saw through that prophetic vision. Well, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But yet God, understanding that that's exactly what we would do with his grace and his mercy, he continued with his plan regardless of the fact, and he laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Can you say thank God for that?
So while a whole bunch of people thought that nothing was going on of any real importance, everything that's really important was actually going on. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearer is silent, but he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He died. And nobody protested. For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of many people. That would include me and you. He was punished. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich. We know that to be a fact. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was God's will, it was the Father's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Because, you see, it was necessary. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and he will of the Lord, and he and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. He's going to be raised up from the dead and be satisfied by his knowledge by righteous servants. He will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. Isn't that beautiful? Like I said, you don't have to preach this passage of Scripture. You just have to pay attention to it. I'm going to ask my precious wife to come up here now and just for a minute or two, maybe 10 minutes, come on up. Can you help her before we do communion? This is Betsy. Yeah, here's a mic. We're just going to visit this one last time. Oh, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that brings us right up to date in what he's doing right now. And then I just thought I'd add that. You want to say amen to that? Amen. amen. So 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, Isaiah saw this. And he recorded it. And I think he put it into five snapshots. The first is verses one through three. So would you read that, honey? Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
So my, the first snapshot is just that Isaiah was surprised what his Messiah looked like. And I think some of us need to get surprised about what he looks like. And to realize that really, when it comes right down to it, the only Jesus that anybody in Bellevue or Bothell or Renton or wherever you live, the only Jesus, unless he chooses to return this week, that anybody's going to see is going to be the Jesus that they see in us. We have to ask ourselves the question, what's that look like? How believable is that? How normal is that? My wife and I talk about this quite often because we really have a problem with organized religion, <laughs> which is interesting having been a pastor for 45 years, but we have a <laughs> serious problem with organized religion because people turn the supernatural power of God into something abnormal. It is supposed to be normal. It's supposed to be normative and it's supposed to be believable and people are supposed to be able to observe it and be around the power of God with you without being frightened or annoyed or offended. Church needs to change the way it does its thing. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. So what looked like to everyone a big defeat was in fact a great victory. And ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand that about our own daily lives, that sometimes God is doing his greatest work in your darkest hour. Amen. Yes. In fact, sometimes he can only do his greatest work in our darkest hour. So don't give up. Don't get mad. Let the Lord keep his promises and see you through it. He, he doesn't promise us that he'll deliver us from all of it, but he does promise us that he'll see us through it. So whatever might be trying to overtake you right now, God wants you to take you through it to the other side of that, and you're going to be a better person for it because what looks like defeat is, in fact, in Christ, a victory. And now verse 6, the third snapshot. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So while he was loving us, we were ignoring him. Or maybe you could put it the other way around. While we were ignoring him, he was still loving us. Verses 7 through 10. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I want you to make sure you keep this snapshot in your wallet. The suffering Savior. Don't let the grace of God ever be cheap to you. The precious suffering of Jesus, the price that was paid, the cost of our salvation is amazing. And the degree of suffering that he went through on your behalf must never be taken for granted. It must never be forgotten. Because if it is, it will, will cheapen his grace at work in our lives. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. And that price is the suffering of Jesus. And then the final snapshot. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. <laughs> Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he would divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So this last section is a beautiful snapshot of the glorified Christ. Raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, victorious, having completed his mission. And all Isaiah could say to the people that he was writing to down through the centuries is, you're never going to believe this. It's too good to be true. This guy rose from the dead for Pete's sake. And it all came true. Praise the Lord. Thanks, hon. I think it's really very, very appropriate that we're going to conclude our time now with communion because we've gathered at the foot of the cross with Isaiah this morning. So I'm going to ask you to take the elements that are there in front of you in your seat. And I'd like to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes and talk to Jesus about the extent of his love for you and the extent of his suffering on your behalf. And just let that sink in for a minute before we do anything. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed and you're thinking about the love and suffering of Jesus on your behalf, I would just extend the question to any man or woman in this room. Perhaps you're here today and you did not realize that there was ever anybody that loved you that much. 
and frankly, you're, you're, you're tired and sick of living this life without the help and the forgiveness of a loving God at work in your life. The Bible says that if you will confess the Lord Jesus Christ, if, you, if you'll believe that what Jesus did for you is true and that he in fact did that for you and believe that in your heart, that you will experience salvation, which means your sins will be forgiven, that Jesus died to cover, but also that he will come into your life and bring you the strength that you need to carry on. And before we take communion together, I just want to invite anyone here who is not right with God or is first understanding how much God loves you, who might identify yourself to me while no one's looking around and raise your hand and say, Jim, would you pray for me? I want to get right with God this morning and I desperately need him in my life. Is there anybody? Just, just raise your hand wherever you might be seated and I want to pray for you. Okay, well, I don't see any hands, so that, that means that, oh, here's one, great. Anybody else that I miss? Anyone else? Wiggle your hand. If you. Raising your hand doesn't really do anything. It just helps me to know who I'm praying for. Yes, I see you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, let's, you can put your hands down. Let, let's pray. Church, would you pray with these people with me? And I'm going to invite the, those of you that raised your hand just to pray out loud. But these, everybody's going to pray with you, so... You're not going to feel on the spot, but we, we just want to help you. <clears throat> Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you <clears throat> died for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I invite you into my life. I need your help. So I receive your grace and your mercy right now. Amen. <clears throat>